Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This podcast is brought to you by Kim Crawford Wines. Kim Crawford invites you to savor amazing with a chilled glass of New Zealand's finest. Named in the Wine Spectator Top 100 list four times. Every sip of Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc is filled with tropical fruit flavors like passion fruit and citrus to help you experience golden hour how you see fit. Visit KimCrawfordWines.com to learn more and find Kim Crawford Wine near you. Savor amazing. For those 21 and over, please savor responsibly. Constellation Imports, Rutherford, California. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stefan Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. And it's time for another female first, which means we are once again delighted to be joined by our friend, the amazing, the wonderful Eves. Welcome, Eves. Hey. Hi. I feel like we should do a supercut of these introductions. <laughs> I try to I try to mix up the the superlatives I give you every time, but I don't know how well I'm succeeding. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I'm here for it. I feel very welcome every time, and I feel like that's the point of them. So I feel Yay. special. <laughs> <laughs> you are special. <laughs> and we we just had a very interesting conversation about cockroaches. Yeah, we're all invigorating yeah. in here. I'm 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 dancing. I know. <laughs> yep. Yep. We're all on edge. Oh, yeah. We're looking around. <laughs> Head on a tilt on the high swivel right now, waiting for something <laughs> to show up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cause it's very warm here, and that's when the cockroaches come out in in my experience. And um it also sounded like we had a, I think we could write, you know, some poems, some essays <laughs> about cockroaches. Yeah. 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 We might have to for catharsis pretty soon, honestly. I think so. I think so. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it is interesting, and I swear this is all going to relate to what we're talking about, um, how <laughs> cockroaches are, in my case, spiders. We were talking about kind of these life-changing events. And for me, like, there are certain things I do because of bugs and one is I flip my <laughs> all my glasses are down so they can't get in the glass. Oh, I've, before I've like gone okay. to fill up a glass with water and there was a bug in there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Been there, yeah, true. I don't do that though, so maybe yeah, should think about that. I feel like I'm like really amping or getting everybody on edge. But you've got a jacket, a jacket thing. Yeah, I do. I so any when the warm months roll around and I know that the cockroaches are about to show up, I will be really careful about taking my 
my sweaters and, well, not sweaters, like hoodies and things that have arms and a lot of material on them and shaking them out before I wear them because I had a roach in one of my jackets when I was younger and it just scarred me for life. So I honestly, like, I feel a little bit embarrassed and guilty about having to think about that when I take stuff because I'm like, I shouldn't still be living with this. This feels like trauma living in the body that I can release. <laughs> but I'm not going to release it, honestly. I'm not right. because no matter how many people try to tell me that insects are cool and they're necessary and that I shouldn't be afraid of them because they're smaller than me, I, I some things I just have to accept aren't logical. And this is one of them. So <laughs> I'm going to continue to be myself and do that. Look, all these bugs have defense mechanisms and it scares the bejesus out of most people. Yeah. I actually have a similar experience with scorpions because we had them in uh, growing up and they would get into our shoes. Yes. So mm-hmm. I will check my shoes because yeah. I have been stung mm-hmm. on the foot because mm-hmm. of scorpions crawling into things like that. So I think that's just a universal. People have some, typically I think someone has, everyone has something along those lines because yeah. they're mean. These little bugs are mean. Yeah. I do feel like people who can deal with it though are, are really cool. Like I, I would be a little bit cooler if I was just like, oh, you know, got to get this bug out of here. I'm going to pick it up right. in and take it outside and there you go, scoot on away. You know, but no, I just have to freak out. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, I don't I don't believe those people. I'm like, I know you're freaking out and you're just trying to be cool. I know. <laughs> My dad was somebody who would be like, we're not killing that spider. We're going to take it outside. Mm-hmm. I used to have a wasp nest in my room, so I would literally wake up with like 30 wasps in my room every morning. He would come in with like tweezers and he would just put them back outside. Whoa. And then they would get back in. That's cool. Yeah. It was one of those things looking back now, I'm like, wow. <laughs> what an interesting thing to live with. But uh, I had a cousin who he kind of grew up in in a place that further north that didn't deal with bugs like this. Mm-hmm. He came to stay with us one time when he was like nine years old. And I told him the scorpion thing. I was like, you got to, okay, you got to check your shoes. Freaked out. And then I told him <laughs> about like the wasp. Freaked out. And then... <laughs> The cicadas, the sound of the cicadas, he called his parents and said, you got to get me out of here. I cannot take this. (laughs) He never stayed with us again. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Southern living is a whole different thing. It is. It's an acquired taste. For many reasons. (laughs) For many reasons. For so many reasons. Um, Okay, well, I, I suppose we should get into... Our topic for today, I feel like we could continue on this route for forever, but uh, who did you bring for us to discuss today, Eve? Today, we're going to be talking about Anne Petrie. So Anne Petrie was the person who wrote the first book by a Black American woman to sell more than a million copies. We're going to be getting into her story today, a little bit about her upbringing, how she started writing, um, the things that she cared about. Yeah, she had a life well lived, so I'm excited to talk about her. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of very good quotes, which I know you mm-hmm. love. Oh my goodness, <laughs> yes. Okay, yes. I, there were some of her quotes that really, really struck me. Uh, it's mm-hmm. so funny you mentioned that because you, you know I do. I really love yeah. getting into the quotes, and I like I won't honestly won't get into too many today. Um, but she did give some interviews, and she did. Um, write quite a few short stories, and she wrote a few novels. But um, just as a little teaser, one of the things that I think is super relevant about her story and that I love, 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 and like, 
I'm probably going to be dwelling on and letting sit within me for the the next like month or so, probably. Um, It's going to be on my spirit is the way that she talked about uh, public exposure. And um, I would like, I really would love to know (laughs) how she feels about how we interact with public exposure and ideas of personality and celebrity and fame today. But um, we should talk about a little bit more about her. <laughs> and so, yes. so everyone knows who she is before we get into that. Yes, but I do want to say I thought of you when I read really? those quotes about public exposure. It's like, this feels very like Eve's mm-hmm. to me. <laughs> yeah, I would love to know. Yeah, when we, I'll pause there. I would love to know both of your thoughts on that for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, but I suppose we should, yes, build up to that. Yes. Um, and get into some history. Mm-hmm. So we'll start from the beginning. She was born Anna Houston Lane in 1908 in Old Saybrook, Connecticut. Her parents were Bertha Ernestine James and Peter Clark Lane. Her mother was a barber and beautician, and she later started a business making line and lace tablecloths and napkins, and her father owned and operated a drugstore, which they lived above, and they actually stayed in for many, many years. They had one child who died as an infant and Helen Louise Lane. Their other child was Anne's older sister. Um, There weren't many Black families in their town. Anne later called it an essentially hostile environment for a Black family. But in the 1910 census, one of her uncles and aunts were listed as members of the household. So another of her aunts, Anna Louise James, who comes up later in her story, Um, She had her own first, actually. She was the first licensed Black American woman pharmacist in Connecticut. But um, when Anne was four years old, she started going to old Saybrook Elementary School. She and her sister were bullied at this school, but their uncles went to school with them one day and shut that down. Um, She read the book Little Women, and did, by Louisa May Alcott when she was in elementary school, and she really connected to it. Um, So... She was starting to get into reading, and in 1915, Anna's mother graduated from the New York School of Chiropody in Harlem, and she started practicing near the family drugstore, but her father took a job in Hartford, Connecticut, so he would go out there and spend time with family while he was there, and he would come home in the weekends, and so Anna's aunt, Anna Louise James, took over the pharmacy and was soon its owner, and... I'll call her from now on Anne Petrie. But yeah, so she became a member of the church because there there is a little bit of confusion in the name. So she was born Anna, but um, she is referred to as Anne Petrie. But yeah, so she became a member of the church. Her family attended the Old Saybrook Congregational Church. She was an active member for the rest of her life. And she graduated from Old Saybrook High School. And it was during this time where she talks about Uh, Anne says that she got interested in writing, Um, and she was kind of encouraged by a teacher who didn't like her, but she realized that her teacher called out one of her essays and read it to the class, and she realized that she really liked writing, and it was something that she wanted to do. But anyway, in 1926, she started attending Hampton Normal and Agricultural Institute, which is now Hampton University in Virginia, where she took courses in meal prep and domestic economy But she left there soon after a strike happened um, due to staffing and teaching concerns. She started going to a college of pharmacy in New Haven in 1928, and she graduated. 
and kind of followed the family line, began working for the family store in Old Saybrook, then in Old Lyme in Connecticut. So she was kind of following the same path that had already been forged by her father and her aunt. And during this time, she was already um, she was already a writer. So she was already sending short stories to magazines and getting rejected. She talks about how she could fill rooms with her rejection slips, which I think is something pretty much every writer can uh, relate to. But she met George David Petrie on a trip to Hartford, and they married in March of 1936 in New York. But at that point, she didn't tell her parents. She was pretty secretive about the marriage at that time. But a couple of years later, she married him in a public ceremony at her parents' house. So you'll see her not in a period in her record keeping, not really commenting on the 1936 marriage as the time that they were married, but the 1938 as the quote unquote official marriage or the ones that other people in her family recognized. Um, But yeah, so they moved to Harlem not long after they were married. And it was at this point that she switched professional direction toward writing. So what she was making money off of, though, she said she she known that she been wanted to be a writer since high school. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This podcast is brought to you by Kim Crawford Wines. Life is busy. There are so many things on your to-do list with so little time to do them. And you're always thinking about others' needs before thinking of your own. Trust me, we understand. Kim Crawford does too. That's why they're inviting you to experience Golden Hour, your chance to reclaim your time and laugh with your favorite people, play your favorite song on repeat, gaze outside your window and daydream about your wildest dreams, or celebrate your victories. No matter the moment, you can savor it all with a chilled glass of New Zealand's finest. As the number one ranked Sauvignon Blanc in the U.S., Kim Crawford has classic aromas of lifted citrus, tropical fruit, and crushed herbs to help you stay in a golden hour state of mind. Because golden hour is more than just time, it's whenever you want to savor amazing. Visit KimCrawfordWines.com to learn more. That's KimCrawfordWines.com to find Kim Crawford Wine near you. Savor amazing. For those 21 and over, please savor responsibly. Constellation Imports, Rutherford, California. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands. 
not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. So this is where we get deeper into her career after she moved to New York. She worked in an after-school program in Harlem. She worked as an advertising copywriter for a wig company, then got a job in the advertising department at Amsterdam News. And in 1939, she published her first short story, Marie of the Cabin Club, in the Baltimore Afro-American under the pseudonym Arnold Petrie. She wrote a few more works under this pseudonym as well. She got paid $5 for that one. A year later, she she acted in as a newspaper editor in an American Negro theater production of On Strivers Row. And yeah, so, but after a while, she stopped working at the Amsterdam News and she went to the People's Voice to work as a women's editor. And it was at this point where she was becoming more involved in activism. It's a whole list of things, but for brevity's sake, there are, here are a few things she was involved in. The Consolidated Housewives League, which aimed to stop the quote-unquote shady practices of unscrupulous merchants. Um, she helped establish Negro Women Incorporated, which helped provide working-class women with info on purchasing things, and it encouraged political action and voting and things of that sort. And she also volunteered for the Laundry Workers Joint Board. So she kept writing and she kept publishing, by the way. I mean, that is her whole life, pretty much. Um, Writing, working, and things that are related to writing, teaching, um, doing lectures, interviews, things of that sort, was is a constant throughout her entire life. She was accepted into Mabel Louise Robinson's writing workshop after she found out about it, which was at Columbia University. And she studied with her for a couple of years, and she... Really, she credits uh, a lot of her interest and love and passion for writing to Mabel Louise Robinson. Um, But she was let go from the People's Voice because of staff cuts. She did, though, go on to work a number of part-time and temporary positions. Her story on Saturday, The Siren Sounds at Noon, was published in The Crisis. When an editor who was at Houghton Mifflin read her story. They reached out and asked if she was working on a novel and suggested that she apply for the Houghton Mifflin Literary Fellowship. So that's when she she didn't have a novel, but she started working on the street and she submitted it to the fellowship. She ended up winning $2,400 from the fellowship to work on the novel. She did finish the novel and then she went on and published it And so this is her first. Um, On February 7th, 1946, she published the novel. It sold 20,000 copies before it was released. And eventually it sold over 1 million copies, making it the first book by a Black American woman to do so. So her first novel, her debut novel, um, yeah, was uh, released to a lot of critical and clearly commercial um, success. Uh, the novel is about a single Black mother and her son in Harlem, and the main character in this book, as are 
a lot of the characters in the works that she created was were driven by the pursuit of the quote-unquote American dream. It was received pretty well, but obviously there are always people who aren't fully okay with it. Um, some did criticize its depiction of Harlem. And there was a lot of back and forth with it being optioned for a film and considered for um, to be on the stage, but uh, that didn't happen um, but that same, in 1947, Houghton Mifflin published her second novel, which was Country Place, about a white family in a small town in Connecticut. So this is what we kind of referred to at the top of the show, how it was at this point, like, you can imagine the amount of attention that was dumped on her in this moment. It was her first novel that was coming out. It was released to a lot of fanfare. She was going to the parties, doing the interviews, and all those sorts of things. And, you know, even though there were some critics who, you know, the second novel is like the all the comparison to the first novel that happens, there were some critics who didn't think her second novel was as uh, up to par, up to the par of the first one. But she was getting tired of all that fanfare that she had to endure because of her newfound celebrity. And she described feeling like, quote unquote, public property. And... She even destroyed some of her letters and writing, and she said that it made her, quote, feel as though I were a helpless creature impaled on a dissecting table for public viewing. And she didn't even want people to photocopy work from her archives. There is her, a lot of her work is saved in archives, some of her manuscripts, her letters and photographs and things like that. But when it came to the question of people asking her if they could photocopy it, she was definitely buttoned up about that and didn't want it to be reproduced in that manner. So yeah, she really, she clearly, clearly valued privacy and seclusion. <laughs> um, one thing that we often don't have a lot of this these days and talk a lot about the protection of those things in technological ways. And so she moved to Old Saybrook with George and this is pretty cool. They got an old house originally built for a sea captain in the late 18th century and ended up renovating it. But yeah, that's kind of a thread at this point in her life where she kind of removed herself from all of the the limelight and all of the, the busyness um, that comes along with the fame that she got from her work and didn't interact with it in that way. And the interviews that she did give and what she wrote in her journals she talked about how that was intentional. You know, she realized that and she knew that she had to make that move for herself. Yeah, so that is um, something I think that YouTube, as well as being podcasters and knowing how much interacting and engaging with the world through things like social media is considered a necessity in a lot of ways, even though it's not completely <laughs> a necessity, but that's the way that it is... Uh, pressed upon people who are quote-unquote personalities or public figures or public intellectuals, <laughs> which sounds like <laughs> such an eric, like, I don't know. Let me yeah. not, because I know there are people who, who, who claim that title for themselves and are okay with it. But um, yeah, so I, I figure that's something that we can all relate to. Yes. And I feel like I'm worried that I won't give this the complete nuance that it deserves, but just like kind of when I was first going through this, there are so many things that I did relate to um, in terms of, and, and we've talked about this on the show, um, 
in terms of what is expected when you are a public figure and what is owed as a public figure and what you feel like you have to give and how... That's kind of why I thought about you, Eves, because to me, you feel like somebody who's very cognizant of boundaries and um, taking care of yourself and self-care and um, internalizing trauma. I could be totally wrong and you could tell me I'm wrong, but to me, that's what... <laughs> I'm all it, about the trauma, actually. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it feels like, that you're good at sort of at least recognizing that. It's been something difficult for me because especially when you're in the arts, it feels like you have to give parts of yourself. Maybe you don't want to, and maybe you do, but then it becomes expected. And so like this part where she destroyed a bunch of her own works, her own writings and, and things like that, um, I've done that as well. And I think that can be, as long as you're doing it, because maybe you're like, oh, this is terrible. I don't want anybody, whatever. But I did it because I just was like ashamed of how other people mm-hmm. would interpret it and kind of that idea of I've also talked about I'm because I'm such a nerd but that also comes with like a lot of toxic fan culture and mm-hmm. I was thinking about that the other day where I just thought I feel like I could really write something great in here but I'm never going to do it because I don't want to have to deal with all of this stuff yeah. that's expected Ooh. of someone who is writing mm-hmm. uh, in that world and that means we're losing I mean, who knows? Maybe I I wouldn't write anything that great, but we're (laughs) losing people and art because of this whole expectation and idea of artists, really. And I'm always always impressed with artists who are able to have their Mm -hmm. private lives Mm -hmm. um, and are are able to separate it. Anyway, I just spoke for a long time, but it uh, it is something that in our jobs I do think about a Mm -hmm. lot. Um, for me, I'm just thinking about her perspective and the fact that she was the first uh, Black American woman to sell that many and the expectations and the naysayers that were probably on top of her. Like, I cannot fathom that idea that not only did she set a precedent for herself as someone who did do these amazing things, but then because people were wanting to see her fail, they tried to push back on her as well. Like, uh, I can't imagine uh, the toll that it would take with that type of uh, limelight on you, especially if all you're trying to do is write. End of story. So there's such a big difference between mm-hmm. those who will be on stage and acting, and even those who do want the light the, to be famous. People typically don't know what that means, truly means. That means not only do you have people who love you, but that are, there's going to be people who don't like you and want to see you fail and therefore uh, truly work against you. So like all of those things and to, to be a writer, an intellectual who just wants to put things on books and has a perspective of uh, fictionalized characters that she probably loved and or hated at times, but felt passionately about to be scrutinized and then continually be like, well, it's not at like the same, the first thing, because there's a standard that after it's released it is owned by the fans like they have Mm -hmm. this kind of like odd relationships to the character so therefore they own it in the type of way and therefore can judge it um and again this is like a whole different level because yeah there's the the time is different could you imagine what would have happened had there been social media at that point in time any of those conversations of course uh but I, i do think about all of that in its layered perspective for her as someone who is just just trying to find her way like you just even the context of her history and her family life it's just literally just yeah we just do it because it's there not because she has this lofty goal of being famous or rich or any of that it's just 
finding something that you love and doing it. For me, yeah, it's been weird to see the level of criticism. I feel like as being a woman in general, that's obvious that it's going to be criticized for everything. And then any mistake is going to be uh, emboldened and highlighted for everyone to re- remind and see. Mm-hmm. You look at her, she she did this thing that we knew she just she was going to trip up any time now. Like, it's just, it's such an odd place anyway. And yeah, the whole perspective mm-hmm. of, again, ownership of of fictionalized characters that was created by someone, it's a whole different conversation. Yeah. And I would, like, the dissonance as well of being a person who talks about things that we aren't necessarily able to live in because of the expectations that are placed upon us because of who we have to be in public and the standards that we have to uphold. Like, we can talk about these feminist ideas of the way we care for ourselves, the way we interact with the public, the kind of agency that we have, (laughs) the kind of uh, choices for control that we have. And like, be it will be so difficult to be able to maintain those in public because of the expectations that are placed on us. So that is, I know that is a very deep topic and this is an aside in Petrie's yeah. biography, but um, it is something that she talked about and she was passionate about. So I feel like because it's something that I, I think we all have experience with that it could be helpful to talk about it a little bit in context of her story. But um, with that said, maybe we'll continue that another day. Um, yes. <laughs> Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This podcast is brought to you by Kim Crawford Wines. Life is busy. There are so many things on your to-do list with so little time to do them. And you're always thinking about others' needs before thinking of your own. Trust me, we understand. Kim Crawford does too. That's why they're inviting you to experience Golden Hour, your chance to reclaim your time and laugh with your favorite people, play your favorite song on repeat, gaze outside your window and daydream about your wildest dreams, or celebrate your victories. No matter the moment, you can savor it all with a chilled glass of New Zealand's finest. As the number one ranked Sauvignon Blanc in the U.S., Kim Crawford has classic aromas of lifted citrus, tropical fruit, and crushed herbs to help you stay in a golden hour state of mind. Because golden hour is more than just time, it's whenever you want to savor amazing. Visit KimCrawfordWines.com to learn more. That's KimCrawfordWines.com to find Kim Crawford Wine near you. Savor amazing. For those 21 and over, please savor responsibly. Constellation Imports, Rutherford, California. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring 
like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. We'll get back to Ann Petrie's story. So she, her daughter, Elizabeth Ann Petrie, was born in 1949. And that same year, she published her first children's book, which was The Drugstore Cat. And she continued publishing more essays, book reviews, doing speaking events. And she had also been working on her third novel, The Narrows, which was published in 1953. That one revolves around an interracial love affair, and it was received pretty well. So she joined the League of Women Voters, and she was elected to the Old Saybrook Board of Education. Those were some of the other things that she was involved in, in terms of her social engagement. Um, And she did get some heat for the things that she was writing in her book. So a lot of her inspiration for the work that she created was obviously how she looked at the world around her through a lot of her observation, particularly when she got to Harlem and the um, her observations of Black people who lived in Harlem and race relations and her consciousness that was growing through her work um, all show up through her activism, were all showing up in her writing work as well. And the National Organization for Decent Literature recommended her book, The Narrows, for censorship. So she was involved in some of, of like, there, she got a little bit of heat for the stuff that she was writing at the time. There is some scholarship on her work talking about how um, a lot of the novels at the time were moving through a space where there was this idea of racelessness and that shows up in some of her work as well. And also relating to the way that she was portraying Harlem and how it was gritty and it was grimy and this kind of sense of hopelessness. And a lot of people took fault with that. Um, But anyway, in 1958, she spent time in Hollywood working as a screenwriter on an adaptation, but that that film was never produced. Um, Her aunt, who ran the family pharmacy in 1967, she was injured and she took over and eventually closed the shop. Um, But the James Pharmacy is now listed in the National Register of Historic Places. And she also became visiting professor of English at the University of Hawaii in 1974 for an academic year. In 1976, she started publishing poems. So there she does have some poetry in her collection. And she got a literature fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts in 1978. And as I said earlier, her work continued throughout her life. She did get a bunch of honorary degrees, like from Suffolk University, the University of Connecticut, Mount Holyoke College, and Trinity College. And over the course of her life, she donated a lot of her materials to places like the James Weldon Johnson Memorial Collection at Yale, um, Boston University, 
Um, Shaw University, Radcliffe College was a place that um, some of Anna Louise's James papers were donated to. And there's a collection of Anne Petrie papers um, in New York. So there is a lot of her um, archive available to people at those places. And including things like some of the personal and professional letters that she wrote to people, like artists and writers like Paul Brooks, Ruby D. Davis, and Helen Hall. But she died in 1997, and she's buried in Old Saybrook. Her daughter, Elizabeth, has written a lot about the family's history, including the family's history before Aunt Petrie was born. She talks about how much her mother gave inaccurate information about her life, even when it came to her birth date, which is uh, something that I think if you've listened to other episodes of uh, Female First and you've heard a little bit about the birth date, miscommunications and purposeful uh, purposeful slights. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, she gave no less than six birth dates. Um, and she did things like this, which you can see if you look through her archive. She obscured dates. She removed pages. She marked out names. And she really kind of controlled what information was available to others. Um, so, yeah. But even though she valued privacy, Elizabeth, her daughter, has written a lot about the family and made some more of those available to the public through um, libraries and research centers. And Farrah, Dr. Farah Jasmine Griffin has also written about her and edited some of these works about her. So you can go and um, read some of her work at, about Anne Petrie as well. And I would also just encourage everybody to go and read Anne Petrie's writing because obviously what we talked about earlier, that was she had the struggle between, you know, am I, am I the writing and the personality element of it? And she cared about her writing and that's what she wanted people to read. So, um, but she has a lot of short works as well. So some of her essays, um, if you're interested in those, uh, more in the nonfiction writing more than the fiction, but she also has short stories and, and her three novels, which we talked about. Yeah. I want to read some Sounds of the like poetry. we need to do a book club for her. Yes. Have these on. Yes. Yes. Oh. <laughs> yes. I mean, once again, another great story. And it's, it's, it's so many times you bring something and we end up talking about like these through lines that we're still discussing. And I, I was just thinking about the kind of controlling the narrative and picking and choosing at different dates. And I was mm-hmm. trying to. I was trying to figure out if that could work today <laughs> with our technology, but yeah, kind of the the right to a private life idea. Uh, yeah, I think we should. We should come back and revisit that. Yeah, I, got, I feel like we so. all have a lot of thoughts about it. Yeah, yeah that need to be teased mm-hmm. out a lot more for me on my end. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, starts early, you know, because I mean, I grew up, obviously the internet was a lot different. It was very different when I was younger, but starting from a place where the internet existed and I spent a lot of my life online and sharing things with people whose faces I had never seen, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, starting a life from that point and then reaching this point now, um, I think is, a lot of uh, things that can come up when it comes to privacy. So it's definitely something that needs to be, I need to think about a lot more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and certainly in our, the age we're living in where we all kind of know that our data is getting collected. 
just seeing this through line and where Anne Peachtree was and where we are now. <laughs> it's interesting mm-hmm. to think about. Interesting to think about. Yeah. Uh, but yes, this. Uh, thank you so much for bringing this to as Eve's. I definitely want to check out some of Petrie's work, um, which I'm excited about. Yeah, I am too. So this is one thing. I, I will say one quote because I feel like I can't leave without saying a quote from Anne Petrie since we did bring it up. And so this is what one thing that she said. Continuous public exposure, though it may make you a personality, can diminish you as a person. To be a willing accomplice to the invasion of your own privacy puts a low price on its worth. The creative processes are, or should be, essentially secret. And although naked flesh is now an open commodity, the naked spirit should have sanctuary. Yeah. Yeah. That so do you something. think she would have been okay with the fact that her daughter did release so much about her after her death? Oh, I don't even want to speak to that because there are people <laughs> who are far greater scholars on her than I am. So um, I do know that her, her daughter has talked about it. You know, like, I don't know if she would be okay with it. But at the end of the day, she did release a lot of her own work, give a lot of her own work. And there was a point that um, she said something along the lines of, "I." When, it was when she was talking about the photocopying of her work, kind of how she didn't really... She donated her work to them, but she didn't imagine or she couldn't fathom the way that people would interact with them, that people would want to do things like photocopy them. And and yeah, so I think she she donated them, but then the afterlife of that is a different story. You know, how can you think about me, Eve's Jeffcoat, <laughs> mm-hmm. who has no relation to her family, talking to you and all these other people who are listening to it about her. So I feel like those kind of things feel hard to accept or don't really feel that tangible when you're living. But I really, it's so few of us. I mean, I think there's a conversation to be had about her archive work as well and the work that her family continued to do after she passed and making it accessible to people. But the work that she did herself when she was alive and honoring her own legacy as she was creating it, which I really respect and I love. And it's one thing that I can pull something from. Um, and anyone can, like, you know, like you're writing it, damn it. (laughs) And it means something. Right. And I know you two are both writers, so I'm sure there's a bigger significance in this conversation for you. But I do, I would say, yeah, celebrating someone's work and accomplishments is a whole different level in um, making sure that they do get their due. And I'm sure because her daughter was, I'm assuming, Again, this is a lot of assumption that was very proud of her what her mother did and the uh, foundation she laid for other writers, especially other uh, Black uh, women writers. I'm yeah. sure that this was out of celebration and love for her. But yeah, I do have those questions in the back of my head. I'm like, ooh, what about mm-hmm. the drama? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, again, future episode, Eve's come back on. But it's also like you can't anticipate certain technologies. And the internet was a big one. Yeah. And so I feel like now we're seeing actors having to say you can't you can or cannot use my image to recreate a deep fake or whatever after they die like there's some things you can't anticipate yeah um and you can't it you can't imagine what is going to happen in the future to your art and how that's going to be impacted yeah um so i think there's a little bit of that going on as well the internet really disrupted a lot of things Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which was Um, not available throughout my entire life this is how I know I'm old. Okay, well, clearly this has sparked a conversation and we'll have to return to it. Thank you so much for including that quote. I think it was 
lovely and very poignant. Well, as always, we love having you here. I'm so grateful there were no cockroach attacks that disrupted this recording. I was, <laughs> I, I was very <laughs> nervous. But until next time, where can the good listeners find you, Eves? I am online at evesjeffcoat.com. So you can find a lot of stuff on there. But in terms of podcasts, you can listen to me right here on this very podcast and many, many other episodes of Female First in which you can hear about people who had first in history. And on Twitter at evesjeffcoat and on Instagram at not apologizing. Yes. It's always so funny to shout out those handles when you're like, personal life respect. I know. <laughs> and so you like, can cater it what you allow to put up or what you want to put up. Yeah, you can go on Twitter, but you won't get anything from me. Like, <laughs> I'm not on there. Like, you yep. can go click follow, but yeah. sorry, it won't be that edifying for you because that is actually <laughs> one of my boundaries. <laughs> Just so you know, though. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, and you can find us, good listeners. You can email us at submediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at Stuff I'll Never Told You. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina. Thank you, Christina. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This podcast is brought to you by Kim Crawford Wines. Kim Crawford invites you to savor amazing with a chilled glass of New Zealand's finest. Named in the Wine Spectator Top 100 list four times, every sip of Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc is filled with tropical fruit flavors like passion fruit and citrus to help you experience golden hour how you see fit. Visit KimCrawfordWines.com to learn more and find Kim Crawford Wine near you. Savor amazing. For those 21 and over, please savor responsibly. Constellation Imports, Rutherford, California. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect.